This is KOOP HD1 HD3 Hornsby. The following was home crafted and recorded on November 22nd and 23rd. Austin Chronicle show. My name is Kim Jones and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. Over the course of the pandemic, I think we've all become a lot more accustomed to our pop culture consumption moving online and artists are finding new avenues to connect with audiences on platforms like Twitch, Instagram, and TikTok. And that's not going away even as IRL experiences like live music shows are coming back in a post-vax world. So in this week's issue of the Austin Chronicle, music editor Kevin Curtin and staff writer Rachel Rasco collaborated on a piece profiling some of these music creators who've made a home for themselves online. And I've asked them here today to talk some more about what it was like writing that story and what it's like for these artists who are forging a new career on our screens. Kevin and Rachel, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having us, Kimberly. Thanks for having us. Hi. So let's start with where did this story start for you guys? I think so often, like we kind of see people go viral and we're so excited to see them that they're from Austin, but because a lot of these creators, the way that they interact with music doesn't follow a typical release cycle of like an album or even singles. We've like, not always had the opportunity to find the right time to write about them. So yeah, it was really just exciting to finally catch up with a lot of them because they all have such interesting stories that do revolve around music, but aren't always necessarily, you know, recording music isn't the only thing that they do. So I think that was kind of the idea behind it. We could think of a lot of people in our heads that would be a great fit for this kind of creator emphasis story. You know, that's funny. When I was thinking about this interview and when I was reading your story, I thought about it from the perspective of the creators and I thought about it from the perspective of the audience, but I hadn't really thought about it from the perspective of the music journalist, of what it is like covering this new world. So let's sort of dig into it. Let's talk about what kind of platforms in particular these artists are thriving on. Kevin, do you want to take that? Yeah, well, one of them in particular is Twitch. And I use Twitch primarily to follow some of the stuff that my friends are doing on there. I have a friend who plays video games at 420, Twitch, like old school video games, and there's a robust comment section. And I have friends who make music on Twitch, like show the creative process of making music. And when we went into it and talked to these artists who are thriving on Twitch. The thing that I found the most interesting is the fellowship. The commenting goes beyond just saying whether or not you like what is being created. You like the song or you're into the music. It's really people connecting in a vast way. And and this artist who, who I interviewed for the story, whose name's Mandy Prater, and she's in smaller bands and stuff like that but she has thousands of subscribers on twitch and she can really make a living off of it her fans have come up with a name for their 
fandom, the Mandalorians. There is a couple who met through her Twitch channel, and there are people who visit each other in real life on road trips and stuff because of the friendship that they have on this channel. And, you know, when I think about, let's call old social media, you know, Facebook, you know, I think about people from my hometown arguing over which gas station pizza is better. And on Twitch, I was taken back by the experiences that they're having with each other. The other thing about Twitch that I would thought was interesting was that both people who Rachel and I profiled, both of them are songwriters and song performers. And the basic playing out of their performances on Twitch was that people are requesting songs and there's a queue of requested songs on some of them. Subscribers or people who donate more money can have their song bumped up to the top. But it's just like, what do you want to hear this artist play? They provide a song list. And you tell them what to play and they play it. And and that's a very different from a concert format. I thought that was interesting. So that's Twitch. That's one of the ones that we talked about. Let's stay with Twitch for a second, because I think we really want to like underscore the Twitch. There is live streaming and there is live interacting with the musicians in the form of, you know, emojis that are happening. Or Rachel, you had sent me a clip of a couple that you interviewed, ACS. Yeah, ACS, and then their Twitch channel is called A Couple Streams because they're a married couple. So Right. And the clip was mesmerizing because it's like the lighting is real chill and they're sort of shoulder to shoulder and they're moving together in this super intimate, it feels intimate. I assume that's real intimacy and not sort of a, a, a picture of intimacy, but I don't know. I mean, there was kind of a it felt like a show was going on, which I guess is sort of the point. Is that, I think, part of the allure for people is that there is this intimacy that you don't necessarily experience with the artists that you love? Even at a club, you know, if you're 20 feet back from the stage, it's very different to be watching them on your computer screen as catching them in what feels like an unguarded, really kind of beautiful moment of creation. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think with ACS in particular, people really love that it's so calm and it's so intimate and they are, you know, responding to people using their usernames. They know them by their usernames and they say hi to people that have been watching them for years now because they've been full-time streaming for five years. So yeah, I think that was the most interesting thing to watch for them is just that this like fan culture has emerged within their channel. Like Kevin was saying, where, you know, there's certain songs that they always play that people want, and they always have a live stream of their cat in the corner that's sleeping. And yeah, they kind of talked to me about how they felt like, in some ways, they were kind of like the antithesis to what people might expect a streamer to be like, which might be like really flashy and have like crazy sound effects going off. They're kind of the opposite. It's just like very mellow and soothing, but they still manage to kind of build in those aspects where you are thanking people for donating and you are incentivizing people to head over to your merch store and stuff like that. So how is the experience different on say Instagram? Are people building different profiles there? Is it a different kind of success or different metric for success? One thing that I think is interesting about Instagram is obviously it's a shorter format than Twitch. You know, people on Twitch are, are on there for an hour or hours, you know, doing a performance on, on Instagram. It's incredibly bite-sized 
And some people's art lends better to that than others. I was really interested in profiling Flobama, who is a producer and beat maker in Austin. And he makes great records and plays cool shows and all that. But what he does on Instagram is extremely interesting to me because he's an excellent finger drummer. He also plays synths. It's incredibly watchable. And you can get so much across in one minute for like a one minute regular Instagram post or even a reel, which is significantly shorter. His art form can get across in that. And you can see people reacting to it positively and discovering him. And, you know, I think in the core of what we're talking about with this story and what we're talking about with music in a general sense is self-expression. I think on Instagram, it can be fairly bite-sized and still very adequately communicate your self-expression, which, you know, music self-expression is basically what makes you different in the world. I'd love to hear Rachel talk about the artist who she profiled in relation to Instagram, because it's kind of a different world of art. Yeah. And I would also add that just, I think Flobama is so like someone that we had in mind for this kind of story that we've known about for years. His aesthetic is so well known on the internet. My boyfriend just was telling me that um, he was like shopping for a keyboard online and someone was like, the description of the keyboard was like, if you want to see this keyboard, go watch this video. And it's like a Flobama video. So, but yeah, on my end, I wrote about this Instagram influencer, I suppose, but also is a musician named Michaela Geyer and she's 23 years old. And I think like a lot of people who want to be creative, she was kind of having a weird year post-college in the last year and it was the pandemic and she wasn't really sure what she wanted to do. She had already been putting out music that had a decent following and she really found her niche like on Instagram reels, which was a feature that was rolled out last year by Instagram to kind of compete with TikTok to be able to put up videos. So yeah, she's using her training as a former classical ballerina to make these Instagram reels where she dances and she's just found like insane success on it. While I was writing the story, I kept having to like update her follower count because she literally gets thousands of followers every day because of her dance videos and it has translated into her music as well. So yeah, her case was just like super interesting and she moved here a couple months ago and I don't think a lot of people have known about her yet. So it was really cool to hear from her. I found her videos in particular totally charming, but something I think that's really interesting when you're talking about Michaela or you also profiled Pastel Ghost, TikTok. It struck me in both of those instances that these are people who, you know, obviously artists trying to make it need to have some marketing savvy, need to know how to connect with audiences. Like the hustle has always been there for any musician since the beginning of time. It's just the hustle is morphing in really interesting ways in this digital world of people who are now, you know, trying to figure out how to bust the algorithm, how to catch viral success. Can you talk a little bit about that sort of, or did they talk to you about that? Yeah. I mean, I think so much of that for a lot of these artists is just, even if they're not aware of it when they're making the content, so much of this at this point is a means to getting on the Spotify official playlist, which just like helps people's 
stream so much like Spotify has so much power now and that they like self curate these genre playlists that yeah like an essential part of a lot of these stories kept coming up was just like if they were able to get on the official playlist because of their online popularity on other platforms like Instagram and TikTok that really helps their music careers and even though streaming isn't the best source of income if you can get millions and millions of streams on your songs it does become a substantial source of your artist income so yeah that was just really interesting to hear it does seem like especially for TikTok that's definitely where a lot of the playlist placement is coming from these days you know i think that all three of us are generally real positive on this but i guess to to look at it from the from the doomsday perspective is there anything that you find troubling i mean y'all both are performers you perform live. Do you feel like anything is being lost? Well, I think Rachel addressed that nicely in the intro, kind of via a quote from Ali, who's one of the two people who do ACS. It shouldn't be looked at as a replacement for the stage, but a different medium altogether. I used to think the same thing between like playing a concert at a club or theater compared to a basement show. It's just like, this is a different world. And I think that the way people connect to music is always vast. And these are new avenues of it or newer avenues of it that I don't think like degrade the other experience. I don't know anybody who's like, no, I'm not going to go out to this cool in-person show because like, I have something that I want to watch on TikTok or something like that. I think it's different mediums. And if artists can find success in both of those mediums, it just means more of an opportunity for them. And, you know, one thing that Rachel can speak to of like how it kind of crossed over, but like Nate Wilkins talking about how their fans on TikTok crossed over to their band which isn't even really related to the TikTok account, right, Rachel? Yeah, like, Nay is known locally as the guitarist and, like, front person of this band Hikes, and they are doing really well on TikTok with these, like, guitar videos. But, yeah, that it did translate to streams for them. And, yeah, I think also just overall, like, that we totally agree, like, we had hesitancy about doing this story because we didn't want every story to just be, like, yeah, my manager told me to do this and then I went viral and now I just do this and this for the internet. But I think all these stories ended up being really unique and no two were really the same. So I think it really shows that like people do like fall into these different creator roles and they were all, they all ended up being pretty different. Well, I thought it was a terrific story. It's on newsstands now, but you can also go online and find it on our website, austinchronicle.com. And that's a great place to find links and see video clips of all the really cool stuff that these creators are doing. Y'all, thank you so much for taking the time out today to talk with me. Thanks, KJ. Thanks for having us. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the Austin Chronicle show on Co-op 91.7 FM. 
I am so excited to welcome my next guest, Austin Chronicle culture editor, Richard Whitaker, because it means we get to talk about movies and talking about movies is pretty much my favorite thing to do. Richard, thank you for joining me. Oh, always a pleasure, Kim. How are you doing today? I'm great. I can't wait to talk to you. So Thanksgiving, it's traditionally a terrific time to go to the movies because the studios are just flooding the field with Oscar bait and big blockbusters and family movies and just all the quadrants. Would you say that's still the case, though, now that we're in pandemic year two? Oh, absolutely. November has become an insane period this year. The studio just throwing what it hopes is going to be award season bait. And like you said, it's this very divided thing between Kids movies on one side where the family can go, oh, we'll go see something. And then the the chin strokers that are really aiming for particularly a lot of stuff that's going to be in contention for best actor consideration in the upcoming year. Of course, the big one that's getting a lot of word this week is House of Gucci. Ridley Scott's take on all the shenanigans that went on in the famous fashion label in the 90s, including murder. Depending on your take on this, a lot of people are just regarding this as a new camp classic in the making, which for a film starring Lady Gaga, Adam Driver, Al Pacino, and Jared Leto, an unrecognizable Jared Leto. I came out of the screening and there were so many people went, where was he? He's under 10 pounds of makeup. He seems to have understood what this film is about because it's completely ridiculous, but a lot of people are finding it very, very entertaining. If you grew up in the 80s and you watched a lot of crazy soaps like Dynasty and Falcon Crest, you will recognize a lot of this film. It is wild in a lot of ways. More for some people than others, but a lot of people have been having a great fun time with this. I mean, that sounds great to me. I have not seen it yet. I've been saving it for actually Thanksgiving weekend. I did see that Lady Gaga's, even her own dialect coach was like, yeah, she kind of sounds more Russian than Italian. Did you like it, though? I was not a huge fan, but there were people around me who were having an absolute blast. If you just go for the raw pleasure of hearing terrible accents, a lot of people are complaining that they've cast Chris Pratt as Mario in the upcoming Super Mario Brothers movie and going, he can't do an Italian accent. Well, nobody in this film could do an Italian accent. It's a little bit Saturday Night Live sketch in places. In fact, when I first saw the trailer, I was convinced it was an SNL skit. But no, this is a full-blown historical drama about the Gucci's trying and sometimes succeeding and killing each other off and committing massive tax fraud. Not my favorite film of the year so far. Although I will have to say, if you're looking for something that's a little bit more Thanksgiving-y, we've actually got some Thanksgiving-esque films this year. Because what's Thanksgiving without food and absurd amounts of it and overly rich? And so it's the perfect timing for Julia which is the Julia Child documentary that's out this weekend. It's by the same directors, Julie Cohen and Betsy West, who made RBG. And it's this wonderful history of the woman that changed America's relationship with food after World War II. I talked with Julie Cohen. We got an interview up at austinchronicle.com about the importance of Julia Child bringing French cuisine to America in a way that people felt they could do it themselves. But it's also about her life and particularly her relationship with her husband, the relationship between food and sex. They were a wonderful, loving couple, and that comes across so beautifully in the film. It's just a truly, truly sweet movie. So that's out this week. If you want a more cringe 
version of Thanksgiving that is alarmingly accurate for a, a lot of people. This week, we got the release, not theatrically, unfortunately, in Austin, but it is on Showtime of The Humans, which is Stephen Karam's adaptation of his award-winning one-act play about a New York family all meeting up for Thanksgiving in the youngest daughter's new apartment in New York. And it's an amazing cast. It's Richard Jenkins, June Squibb, Beanie Feldstein, Stephen Yuen, and Amy Schumer. It is phenomenal. You come out of it and it's kind of shot like a horror movie, which if you've ever had a Thanksgiving go off the rails with your family, absolutely spot on. It's claustrophobic. The foods all looks really suspect. Everybody's talking in different rooms. It's an incredible piece of work. It's one of my favorite films of the year. And as you can tell, not particularly American by birth. I always have this morbid fascination with Thanksgiving because so many people subject themselves to it rather than really enjoy it. And it really catches that absolutely beautifully. A more kind of heartwarming take on family relationships is Encanto, which is the latest Disney animated film, which is about a magical family in Colombia. And all of them have special powers of some variety. They can lift things or flowers suddenly appear where they walk or they can talk to the animals. Apart from the youngest daughter, who is voiced by Stephanie Beatrice, who doesn't have one of the family's magical powers. And it's about her relationship. This is a gorgeous film. Songs by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Just absolutely beautiful. Very much gets into family dynamics in a very cute way, but still very Disney. There's no big villain in this. It's a thing Disney's doing at the moment that wasn't really in the same way, kind of a big villain in Raya and the Last Dragon. There's nobody going to be in the villains parade at Disneyland in the next couple of years because the villain is lack of communication, but it's absolutely gorgeous film. And the songs are classic Lin-Manuel Miranda. But then kind of on the slightly bleaker side, well, not bleaker, but a little bit more thoughtful. Uh, we've also got the new Mike Mills film, Come On, Come On, which is Joaquin Phoenix playing a radio broadcaster just on the road with his nephew. It's black and white. It's very observational, and there's a lot of people talking about Joaquin Phoenix as a contender for an Oscar on this because it's so driven by his performances, this uncle who's not really sure what he wants in life, apart from the fact that he's been stuck with his nephew for a few days, and he kind of likes kids but isn't sure. But it, this sounds like classic, cloying 80s, 90s family drama. It sounds like a Hallmark movie, but it's not. I mean, this is Mike Mills who made 20th Century Women. It's beautifully observed. It's slow moving. It goes across big chunks of America on this great road trip. It's really about how the generations can talk to each other. And it's a glorious little movie. If you're looking at something that's not as depressing as, as the humans and not as loud as Encanto, it's kind of a nice middle path. Yeah, I want to sort of second that recommendation. Mike Mills is a really terrific filmmaker who only makes a movie like once every five years. Beginners is kind of where he broke out big. And Christopher Plummer, did he win the Oscar for that performance or was he just not? The point being, Mike Mills is a terrific director of actors. And I think, like you said, Joaquin Phoenix is so good. Gabby Hoffman, the marvelous long ago child actress who's turned into such an interesting adult actor, plays his sister in the movie. And it's really sort of, there's a side story about what it's like to be a mother that she's enacting. 
And then the child actor, normally I'm not super into kid actors, but there's this kid, Woody Norman, who you'd never guess it, but he's actually British, no trace of his accent. And he's really just a terrific young person. And the movie really just meets this kid at his eye level and is genuinely curious about, you know, kids' perspectives and their questions and their fears. And Mike Mills has said that he was inspired by becoming a father himself. He has a child with the filmmaker Miranda July. And you can just feel that curiosity and that empathy and this just kind of like trying to figure out what it is that, how kids are approaching the world. It's really, like you said, it's not a, it's not a razzle dazzle kind of movie, even by Mike Mills standards, his previous films have really had this multimedia aspect to them of collages and archival footage and voiceover. And this one is just, it's so much more contained and it's just a really lovely experience. It's really stripped back. And I think that his decision to put it in black and white, when I watched it first, I was like, why has he done that? And then I think, no, it actually really makes a lot of sense. And it isn't, you know, it isn't film school pretension. It actually adds to the film. Well, and of course, you know, we talked about films that are about Thanksgiving and feel Thanksgiving-y. This is also the time of year where people are sending films that are nothing to do with it and are purely like, I'm getting out of here. If you're trying to avoid the family, the big release this weekend is clearly Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City. Complete solid reboot for the Resident Evil series. No Mila Jovovich at all. She's completely gone. That storyline is wrapped up. I talked to the director, Johannes Roberts, and he said that this is much more of a return to the series, the game series Horror Roots, which they really haven't had a chance to do in a long time. So if you want to get away from the family, that'll be a good option for you. That is sort of a taste of a little bit of everything. And Richard, we had about 12 other things that we were going to talk about. And unsurprisingly, we have blown through all of our time. So I'm just going to have to have you back on soon to talk about so much more. So thank you for your time today. Always a pleasure. And yeah, we'll check in with you soon. All right. Absolutely. And that's a wrap for another episode of the Austin Chronicle show. Our guests today were Rachel Rasco, Kevin Curtin, and Richard Whitaker. The show was engineered by Bob Daly and Andrew Solon, and our theme music was written by Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson. We're going to end the episode with one of the digital creators we discussed in our first segment. This is Deja You by Michaela Geyer. We'll see you next week.